Hello and welcome to Living Out Loud, the podcast where I explore the connection between spiritual inquiry and social good. Today I'm speaking with Gay Watson. Gay is a writer concerned with the dialogue between Buddhist thought, psychotherapy and the mind sciences. She has a PhD in religious studies from the School of Oriental and African Studies and she trained as a psychotherapist with the Karuna Institute in Core Process, a Buddhist-inspired psychotherapy. I had a really insightful talk with Gay about Buddhism and her books, A Philosophy of Emptiness and Attention Beyond Mindfulness. So I start each show by asking my guest, what does spirituality mean to you and how has it shown itself in your life? It's a very good question and one I find it quite hard to answer. I have a problem, I think still with the word sort of spirituality, but I, I do think it, it probably is a good one and is the only one that, that can be. Where it interests me is that it it speaks to all the things that cannot be measured and cannot be substantialized or materialized so that's what I'm interested in way beyond any sort of organized religion be it be it Christianity be it Buddhism I think to open the doors to something that is other which is some form of transcendence but probably rather an imminent transcendence something that is is larger than the personal one's personal projects and wishes. Do you think that there are limitations to the word spirituality? If it's something which is something which can't be substantiated, is that something worthwhile? Is that something valuable to discuss and think about? Hugely, yes, it is. Imagination can't be quantified, can't be seen, can't be touched. I think imagination plays a big part in what I would probably call spirituality. Also very, very material things, things that are bigger than us. Nature, for one, as a, as a huge thing. The imagination, another one. Um, the work of artist, which I think is possibly the passage between the imagination and that which is greater than us. So, turning to your book, A Philosophy of Emptiness, do you want to give an, a broad overview of what a philosophy of emptiness is about? Um, I, w- I would definitely, myself, see it as, as, as a philosophy of existence. My take on it is grounded very much in the, in the Buddhist one, which is not an emptiness of lack. It is emptiness is the other side of the coin of interdependence. It is an emptiness of, of the absolute, an emptiness of fixation, of definition. It is an, an acknowledgement of the intricacy and the interrelationship of things. Mm. You know, there is this uh, Buddhist philosophy of dependent origination, which, you know, in its simplest form is when this is, that comes to be. It is a picture of the infinite complexity of things. It is very far from a sort of push-shove, cause-effect, linear view. It is, it is mm. you know, much more, well, more multi-dimensional. And so... Is is against this what you call presence and substance in the, uh, which is established by 
ancient Greek philosophy. The people who've become the sort of pillars of the, of the Greek and Latin tradition in, in, in sort of Western culture pretty much went for philosophies of presence. If, if we kind of conceive of something as a container, the pre- that if there's a dot in the container, that is what is presence and that is what's fixated upon, rather than the space surrounding yes. it. Yes. yes, yes, yes. I know I say in the book it was, it was interesting when I asked sort of people when I was starting to write about this, and I asked a friend, you know, what does absence mean to you? I mean, what does emptiness mean for you? And she said absence, um, lack which is, you know, most was most people's response. But I did ask two artist friends, you know, one was a sculptor and one was a painter. And one said, oh, it's, it, it's you know, the, the, the space around the form. And the other said, oh, you know, it's the way the form takes shape on the page or something. And, yeah, well, I mean, the book for listeners is this wide-ranging exploration of emptiness, trying to trace it in different forms of thought, so from the ancient Greeks to Buddhist, Taoist thinking, all the way through until modernity with different scientific and philosophical takes on what, and and seeing where emptiness speaks through there. So, Gay, if we can speak about perhaps the Buddhist take on emptiness, and you you were speaking about conditioned arising, how does that work? Oh, heavens. Buddhist philosophy and sort of, I mean, some of it can actually make you know medieval christian theology about how many angels could dance on the end of a pin look facile buddhism the sort of linchpin i suppose are other other what are called the four noble truths which probably philologically were the four truths for the nobles not not for all for noble people rather than the four noble truths but they've been set down as sort of tenets of belief and I very much go along, there's an excellent Buddhist writer called Stephen Batchelor who has re, reframed them. I don't think he has reframed them because he has translated it, but as tasks rather than beliefs, because Buddhism is not about belief. It's about action. It's about mm-hmm. practice. It's about living. I think of it in some ways as a first psychology because I think it really was seeing how our minds worked and how various traits we might not like selfishness above all and the, the d- cultivation of, of the self to the exclusion of others, how this comes about and how it can be unpicked. So I think I love his description of the, the, felt, the four tasks, which is that suffering or unsatisfactoriness or dukkha, difficult word to translate, but is to be known. And, you know, it sort of comes in several forms, which is, you know, we want what we can't get. We don't like what we've got. You know, when, what we want disappears quite quickly and we can't always get what we want. And, you know, ultimately the, the, we die. So, so this is to be known, to be acknowledged. And then the second task is to look into the causes of this and get rid of them as much as is possible to to see how we make things worse for ourselves by not understanding and the the causes are basically desire and ignorance and the ignorance is of the three marks of existence which is that life is it's impermanent and it's non-self that's where the emptiness comes in then the third Thing so so these causes are to be abandoned, and then liberation, the wonderful nirvana, which you can, and and Stephen certainly does see as 
of freedom from, you know, pride and fear and a, a much more imminent rather than transcendent, you know, you're going to some reality, which again is against the sort of religious aspect of Buddhism. And then you have the Eightfold Way, which is a path of doing this, of living mm. well. And so the, the self as an illusion, as not this fixed substance which continues throughout time, or an intrinsic essence which continues, is such a counterintuitive Mm. a kind of idea yeah. for our culture absolutely and for and for our experience in a sense as well uh, i'm thinking of the sense of thinking through i me and mine mm-hmm. is how we're trained how we're conditioned absolutely um and and you know we we can't do without it you would actually be you know mentally yeah. unstable if you had no sense of self there is absolutely no doubt but i think it is <laughs> buddhism is very good on middle ways you know, it okay. is the middle way so endlessly you can you can say between this and that and i think it's holding the self more lightly to me it's a difference between being a self the process of an ever of of selfing yeah. and a self an object and and in the West, I think, particularly linguistically, we, we reify, we objectify thing, process into thing. And so it's a process of selfing, which I think might allow you to hold it a little more lightly. Mm. I mean, wearing a psychotherapeutic hat. Terrible pain and discomfort arises when someone identifies with an identity, because that identity was probably came about through a set of circumstances, often in childhood. Now later on in life, circumstances have changed. Life is impermanent, things change. So if you go on with this thing that I am, the clever one, the stupid one, the one who always messes up, these become you become identified with these sort of mental clothing and and they become prisons rather than you know being a helpful we do need something but we also need to hold it lightly and know that it can change it is always changing and transforming well i'd love for you to speak about the when because when you're describing the difference between eastern and Med, uh, western takes on philosophy yeah. you describe the I think it's a French sinologist who puts forth the argument that Chinese thought is structured through a logic of uh, respiration, sorry, not perspiration, (laughs) slightly different thing, a logic of respiration (laughs) rather than a logic of perception. Yeah, can you speak about that? Well, I just got very excited when I read that. I thought it was absolutely wonderful. Um, Here's a French sinologist called François Julien, and he talks about Taoist thought and Chinese thought, all of Chinese thought, as having as being based on 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 a, a logic of respiration, in which the in breath is followed by the out breath, is followed by the in breath. So it's a continuum. It's a spectrum it keep it keeps going it's not an either or it's not a logic of, of, of absence or presence but I thought this was wonderful he likens it to the yin yang symbol of, of of Taoism you know in which there is the little bit of yang in the yin and mm. vice versa in there um, and it is this kind of flowing processual thought that I think is is extremely lacking in western thought i think we are 
sometimes beset by the fact of either or and and a chain of dualisms on which we found our values which then reinforce the dualisms i think it would be very nice if we could have a few more middle roads and a bit more processual thought i think it would yeah. make life a lot easier it would yeah leave allowing that kind of porous space between yes. concepts a, a, like, a kind yeah. of non-duality because so often you see something mm. goes to one end of a spectrum and it's wrong but we don't see it as a, as a spectrum so instead mm. of coming back towards a, perhaps a balance at the middle we shoot off to what if it were a spectrum, would be the other end because mm-hmm. there is neither or and there is no nice little path going through yeah, the middle. Yeah. So we overcorrect, as it were, and then suddenly... There's no critical there's, or creative harmony. No, there's um, no... There isn't that feeling that the one leads into the other and right. they are connected. It's the and-and rather than the either-or. <laughs> also, yes. it's so beautifully embodied. Right. All mindfulness practices seem to start with the breath, pretty much, which is which is again fascinating, and they're quite physical in there. And bringing the duality of mind and body together by focusing Absolutely. on them. I've recently read a book by Carlo Rovelli, who's this Italian physicist, and his big idea is about how all reality is interaction. There's no such thing as here and now; they're always shifting, and. He has this great little section which I think is quite beautifully gestures towards what we're speaking about. And he says, A handful of types of elementary particles which vibrate and fluctuate constantly between existence and non-existence and swarm in space even when it seems like nothing is there combine together to infinity like the letters of a cosmic alphabet to tell the immense history of galaxies, of the innumerable stars, of sunlight, of mountains, woods, and fields of grain, of the smiling faces of the young at parties, and of the night sky studded with the stars. on your breath it is an instant home that you can bring mind and body together it's probably you know even before you go into mindfulness or anything just bring your attention to your breath one five seconds you know you don't need any techniques you don't need you can do it wherever you are It, it is possibly the most useful therapeutic tool i think yeah, and then so once the that the attention is anchored there with meditation practice, which sort of qualities are cultivated through meditation? I think it helps. I think it helps with the slowing down. I think it helps to bring you into the here and now. I think, I mean, in in a slightly negative way, it shows you how out of control our minds are, how thoughts arise, and you know. It's not about necessarily stopping them. It's about noticing that they're there. And if you can notice the thoughts in the space in which they come and try and think of not being taken over by the thought, you don't have to identify with the thought. That is hugely useful, both psychotherapeutically and indeed in meditation. 
because you can see that a thought comes. But I am not that thought. If I can just hold that, that it will float away. And being able to understand how you, how yourself is created. Absolutely. And and you know how we are enthralled to these patterns and habits. And you know patterns and habits are vastly important. You know we are creatures of habit. Therefore, it behoves us to know what habits we are cultivating. And then you might be able to choose, you know, something a little bit more more helpful if you can see a pattern or a habit mm-hmm. that isn't helpful. So yeah, what do you think about the now, yeah, the widespread popularity of meditation? What some people call muck mindfulness. Muck mindfulness. Do you think that meditation has been taken away from kind of a foundational ethic? On the whole, I think any I think any movement towards mindfulness is a good movement. It's in the right direction. I think there is something lost when you are being presented with mindfulness as a way to make you more successful at something. On the other hand, you might say, I am just trying to be more successful at being calm. I don't know. Mm. But but when it's to make you, you know, a better soldier or a better trader on the floor, I have a slight problem. And yet... It's opening a door to something people really need. So moving to um, attention mm. beyond mindfulness, I think because I think attention lines up really well and follows on really uh, naturally from your ideas about emptiness. How did they follow on from each other? Really, because I I discovered that the contemporary people that I was writing about, some of them came explicitly to ideas of emptiness through coming into. Eastern teachings and, and, and Buddhist ideas or other ideas. But quite a lot of them came to what seemed to me rather similar ideas, but without any such training. And where it seemed to me they found that path was through attention, through attention to their own experience. And then I really wanted to explore this, not not in a scientific way, but by actually talking to people that I thought were very good at attention in, in different ways. And I particularly think artists are very good at attention quite often. And part of their job, if you like, I think, is to help the rest of us to see things in, in, in new and different ways. Being able to look at familiar things and make them unfamiliar? Absolutely cleansing the doors of perception completely yes I mean I think I wanted to write the book because I realized how central attention is and you know there's lovely I think McGilchrist or someone else quote of you know with our attention we we make the world because we do we we make the world we live in by what we choose to put our attention on you can co-construction almost. it is a co-construction yes yeah. which gets you back to the interdependence <laughs> and the emptiness of certain yeah, you know absolutely but it is it absolutely is and i think if you if you can see that and of course one loses loses awareness of this and you can't you know wander along tottenham court road <laughs> saying hello clouds but it does add to a kind of re-enchantment of things if you can touch into that sometimes. How do you think that attention is influenced by t- a sense of time, pace and speed? What's that relationship? I don't know. I never managed to sort of undo that, but I did realise that it was crucial. It's something like you cannot give full attention if you're worried about time. 
you know, because time does split us up into, oh, I should be doing this, I should be doing that, so you're not here mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Time can be a bully. Time can... can be an absolute bully, and we are living in a culture that is bullying us time-wise ever, ever more. Rick Hansen puts out a newsletter every week, or a little thing, or just one thing, and it goes out every week. And I think this week said something like, in the days when I used to say to people, how are you? And they'd say, I'm fine. Before now, they say, I'm busy. And that's the current response. And, you know, I spend quite a lot of time in America, and it is worse there. People are so, so busy. We really have got the work-life balance unbalanced. Which other aspects of our culture do you think affect our attention? Oh, screens and, you know, the fact now that we we do multitask much more. I mean, it's always been a joke that women multitask anyway because they have to. If you've ever had children, you, you know, you wouldn't survive if you didn't multitask. But I believe there's some researchers saying we think we multitask, but we just do more things and badly. But I think the idea... I think two things, and I never thought I would say this as being bored as a child, you know, I hated boredom. I think our children children today could do with a bit more boredom, a bit of more free, imaginative time. I think time is being too structured. We need some downtime, mm-hmm. and we don't need to be entertained all the time. I don't think that does our imagination much mm-hmm. good. A, an idea that you kind of return to, and I think is quite central in your thinking, is the sense of letting go, to be able to let go. Would you agree? I I think I'd rather say holding lightly. Um, Letting go perhaps is a bit extreme, but, you know, as I have said, I believe in the middle way. But it's, you can't completely let go. Some things I think you need, the things you grasp really tightly, you need to let go. So it's a holding lightly. It's not not, not a dropping the ball altogether. Okay, and so holding things lightly, how would you encourage being able to hold things lightly? You know, I think mindfulness does distinctly help with that because if you can take, as it were, a step back, if you take that moment to take a breath, to bring yourself to here, rather than the the horrific thing that has just happened or that you're worried about what you haven't done for tomorrow... If you can just make the frame a bit larger, it's always making the frame larger. You know, if Mm -hmm. you can look up, if you can look at the stars, if you can Mm -hmm. just put it in perspective, if you can even see, you know, it's awful, but sometimes putting beyond your own problems and looking at someone else's. It's, it gives you a perspective. It's also very useful and, you know, therapeutic play to think of how you would, what you're worried about, or, you know, if that was somebody else, how you, how you would help them or how you would advise them. Mm. And we're often so much kinder to, to our friends or somebody than we are to ourselves, mm-hmm. you know. So sometimes it's really useful to say, well, if, if my friend came to me and said, blah, and you'll often find that people's response are much kinder to their friends than they are to themselves. And, and then I think if you can just think about that for a few moments, this is helpful. I was wondering if you would 
close the show by reading maybe a poem or a passage that lets the ideas that we've spoken about today just sort of let them let them out. I have to um, end up with Rilke because it's all about the invisible, and he wrote in another in a poem that the first came from a letter to a young poet. A poem. Ah, not to be cut off, not through the slightest partition shut out from the law of the stars. The inner, what is it, if not intensified sky hulled through with birds and deep with the winds of homecoming? Gay, thank you so much for your wisdom and your insight and for being with me here today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, it was my pleasure.